0: Hello, Baker McKenzie welcomes you to Connect on Tech, a global podcast series covering legal developments on data, technology, privacy, and security that impact your business. Here's your host, Brian Hengisbaugh, Global Chair of Privacy and
1: Security. So welcome back to Connect on Tech. I'm uh, Brian Hengisbaugh, Global Chair of Privacy at Baker, and so delighted today to be joined by Julia Wilson, a a partner in our London office who's in the employment group but focuses on data privacy particularly as it relates to employees. Julia, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much, Brian. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I can't resist but mentioning to the audience that Julia just told me that she just put on some lipstick and did up her hair and then realized that this is a podcast not a not not a not a video. So, but know that she's really ready to talk about these issues today. So, I'm I'm glad to have you with us, Julia. Thank you. All right, so Maybe keep it simple. What do you, what are some of the hot topics that we see in workplace privacy right now? What are some of the the burning questions that are on everybody's mind?
0: Well, if I put together um, both the things that are crossing my desk, which is a pretty good litmus test because it's what clients are interested in and asking about, and then I combine that with what I see the regulators doing, um, then I'd say the sort of the really hot items are. Um, the processing of testing and vaccination data by employers is a big sort of um, you know there's a lot of interest in how far employers can do that. Um, another topic I think accelerated by the pandemic is the is around the issue of employee monitoring. That means a lot of things employee monitoring, but employee monitoring remains a hot topic. Um, a really important one particularly given the events of the last 12 months is around diversity and inclusion data and so how far diversity data, can be processed by employers um, and I suppose a, a final one which I feel is really one sort of a hot issue in development is the use of AI in the employment context and particularly in recruitment but there are lots of other ways in which AI is starting to be um, or you know is already being well deployed and you know on that topic in particular we've got you know not only sort of profiling concerns under GDPR, we've got lots of regulators in the data protection space and in the equality space issuing mm-hmm. guidance and raising concerns about AI and around bias. I think that's a really interesting point, the data protection regulators are, are concerned not only for the sort of what I would call pure data protection law considerations, but also that they might be having discriminatory impacts. So I really sort of I find that interesting that that data protection regulators are looking into that space. But then, of course, in the EU, we've also then got this omnibus AI regulation in draft, and that's really going to be a game changer for how AI is is deployed and how how um, AI can be sort of safely used throughout Europe. So that's a a real really emerging one to watch for.
1: Well, let's do this. I mean, I'm fascinated by AI. So you've you've laid out four really hot topics, uh, and definitely each of those are worth looking at in some detail. But I want to just stay with AI for one minute, and then maybe we come back and do diversity and monitoring and vaccination. But AI. So I mean, but what can a a company really do to sort of, as you as you put it, safely manage the use of AI? I mean, my my perception of AI is it's a bit next generation a bit um you know out, out of your control right we have this computer now that's a that's a, a sentient being and can you know make decisions and do things like how can you safely manage ai in in the workplace context
0: and i think there's a real threshold question whether is whether if your ai does actually amount to automated processing for sort of gdpr and uk gdpr purposes meaning that it takes decisions without human intervention that have a legal effect or a similarly significant effect, then actually you can't do that unless you've got a certain specified reason. So you've you've got a threshold question, which is, can I do it at all? And I think part of the, where we're seeing AI deployed in particular is in um, the recruitment space to streamline recruitment um, understandably, allowing uh, organisations to get through a high, higher volume of applications than they might ordinarily be able to do through use of AI, um, and then um, also actually in workforce planning, so where you where you distribute your people in certain sort of workplace settings um, to be most efficient and productive, and so a computer sort of telling you where you need to stand to deliver whatever consumer goods you might be delivering, for instance, as an employee. So really interesting use cases can definitely be, uh, you can understand why they have value to the employer, for sure. Um, But the risk of the data protection law says, well, actually, we don't want you, you can't do that without human intervention. So I think the key, so I think there's a threshold question, can I do it at all? Let me look at Article 22, satisfy myself, I've got a, a sort of at any basis to do it. I then need to build in very clearly an explanation, <laughs> I don't know how easy that is, of the AI and the effects it might have and, in, and make sure it's very clear that people can invite human intervention into that decision-making process. And then I suppose quite apart from whether um, the AI is automated processing or not, and I appreciate this is st- 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 steering us away from pure privacy law, but Brian, forgive me, um, is you also need to be monitoring any disparate impact that your AI is having. Is it producing discriminatory results? And although I say it's straying from um, privacy law, the um, UK's regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office, has published guidance specifically on AI and recruitment, which says if it has discriminatory impacts, then it's unlawful as a matter of data protection law, because that isn't fair and lawful processing. So there we see a merging of our worlds.
1: Interesting. F- fascinating. And and don't don't apologize at all. I mean, I think you, you definitely have to look at the issues holistically, not just sort of divide them into silos and say, well, this is not a privacy issue, so we don't need to deal with it. I mean, I think that's squarely what companies need to do. So AI, great topic and certainly one worth exploring, but that's a great uh, teaser taste on it. Maybe pop over to the diversity issue, which I do think is on people's minds. You know, what are some of the considerations there?
0: So if I can be really blunt, in the EU, so this is not, I'm not answering this for the UK, but largely across the EU, data protection law establishes that it there is not a lawful basis for processing a lot of the data. That you would ideally be able to get from employees to run your diversity and inclusion programs. So what do I mean? I mean if you as an organisation want to be able to track how a um, black employee has, pro- in fact, right from the application process, how diverse the application pool was, what decisions you made, um, or, or you know how you're monitoring progress in terms of your hiring decisions, and then you, if we want to um, track. An individual's process throughout the throughout their career, and let's say you want to run a diversity and inclusion pro, um, uh, program that improves participation and um, improves the um, prospects of uh, you know career development in an organisation targeted at, for instance, I gave the example of your black employee um, across the EU, with a few exceptions, you just can't have that data. So that's a problem. I think. I think, and look, there are very good historic reasons why not having data about people's ethnicity, their religion, their sexual orientation, um, etc. You know, should the employer should not have access to that data. Very good reasons. I think we're entering into a new era where actually the need to overcome um, some real issues, some real equality issues in the workplace, mean that um, the EU law there is is make that harder for employers and. At, Coming from a UK perspective, I think is overly restrictive, but I do have empathy for the historical reasons why. If I switch to the UK, actually, very helpfully, under the UK um, Data Protection Act implementing um, or supplementing GDPR, actually, it um, elaborates a substantial public interest ground for processing um, certain um special category data such as ethnicity and I think that's really helpful or sorry on grounds of equal opportunities so I think that's you know I think that's interesting and helpful but I guess the message is you're going to find it really hard to run those sorts of programs in Europe at the moment with any reliable
1: data yeah you know it's funny I was about to try to find a way to slam on data protection laws not having been thoughtfully crafted but then it occurs to me that they, they may right be able to Save it in the sense that the um the when it comes to the the special categories of data, there are ways that an employer can ground the data processing on you know rights and obligations in the field of employment law and so to the extent that employment law is driving more specificity and a need to be capturing more of this data in order to assure you know equal treatment, you know th- there may be a way to kind of save it so there's that interplay, I think here that um, that that may be helpful.
0: I completely agree. It needs um, the continental government, you know, legislatures to impose those sorts of requirements, and those aren't there yet. And I think that's probably because they'd be struggling with if we do that, then we have to start collecting that data, and we have we're not re- we have we need to have a discussion about that first.
1: Yeah, no, makes great sense. Okay, great. And maybe uh, then hop over to employee monitoring, which I, I agree with what you said right at the top, which is at a time of remote work, you know, that that's increased the amount uh, and the need for monitoring, you know, for security purposes. So that's the wonderful, you know, trade off between privacy and security. But talk to us a little bit about employee monitoring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. It is that trade off. So what are we, you know, what are we talking about with employee monitoring? It's, it's a b- big, broad church. We should probably do another podcast on it, that and I. I. But anyway, it's a big, broad church and it covers, you know, the likes of data loss um, prevention tools and pro which are, you know, important for security, right, to your point. There are others that are less important for security, such as productivity monitoring tools. And then we've got processing that happens, so CCTV, again, for security, but actually we are hearing of organisations using it in some very different contexts and very different um, reasons, such as workforce sort of management and planning, and then you've got the sort of monitoring that arises in the context of an investigation, whether that's sort of a conduct or a compliance investigation involves email, trawl, WhatsApp, trawl, text, trawl, whatever, Um, and you start delving around and, and, and getting into people's privacy. So if I think about what the employer has to do to respond well to that, um Well, actually, another threshold question is there will be some types of monitoring that it will be very difficult to justify. So the sorts of productivity monitoring that give the employers and managers real time or very detailed access to the activities of their employees and employees are being watched, you know, 24/7 in terms of what they're doing, what they're accessing, etc. I think that's Europe wide, including UK in that going to be very difficult to justify. That's disproportionate. So that's the key, proportionality. So let's assume we think we can establish sort of a a lawful basis and and proportionality, then what should we be doing? Transparency is obviously front and centre there. And actually, I think burying what you plan to do around monitoring in a very detailed, acceptable use of IT policy maybe isn't the way to go. I think a really clear employee monitoring policy that lays it all out Lays the CCTV, lays the tools, lays the um, system buildings access stuff, lays everything out and is really clear and transparent about the what and the why. So transparency is key. And that's actually a really good one because it heads off some of the issues you get, particularly in investigations about lack of transparency. So then the next thing I would be thinking about is, um, well, Am I in countries where I have works councils and the like, and do I need to have run this stuff past those works councils? Because if you haven't, then, um, and and you haven't also, you know, been transparent, you run the risk, actually, of um, employees or works councils being able to prevent you from, you know, going to court and getting an injunction to prevent you from doing the activity you want. Um, So I think, you know, to save that embarrassment, you can get ahead of it and speak to the, the works councils and the like. And then, you know, there are going to be various um, important other aspects, like making sure the terms with your vendor are the right terms and all of that sort of thing. But the key output, I think, is your data protection impact assessment. And, you know, regardless of whether a data protection impact assessment is triggered, i.e. whether we look at the sort of blacklists of the various regulators, this technology you're using or the processing or planning actually triggers a DPIA, um, you should at very least be um, doing an, a legitimate interest assessment because for sure legitimate interest is what you'll be relying on, for, if not all, for part of the processing. And that, I mean, those documents I feel, although they're, they are separate, they do a very similar job because they identify the privacy risks and they identify the mitigations and then they work out the balance. Have I mitigated the risks sufficiently in legitimate interest? Have I balanced the, the risks against the rights of the individual sufficiently? In a DPIA, have I mitigated this risk so that it's no longer a high risk um, to individuals? Are these mitigations sufficient? And those build trust. And actually I think organisations should get used to the idea that sometimes it's a good idea for those DPIAs to be available to employees if they request. Not so much on your investigations, those are obviously going to be generally highly confidential, but on a launch of a tool or similar, um, you know, a new form of, uh, you know, a, a new database or or similar that's going to be tracking data in a new or different way. Um, I think making your DPIA available actually is a really good thing.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. A lot of a lot of great points there. I mean, I think, um, and and I couldn't agree more, especially on the concepts that you know, especially with worst councils, for example, and you know, doing the prior consultation. They can they can make your lives miserable if you if you haven't actually done some of that work. And we we saw, I think recently out of Germany there was a 10 million euro fine for a company that was applying CCTV, not for really security so much as to make sure that employees, you know, on the manufacturing floor weren't stealing product or other kinds of things. So there was a sort of twenty-four seven surveillance that was going on and and there <clears throat> the I think the data protection authorities uh, and the, ultimately, the the courts felt that there would be less intrusive ways of assuring, say, you know, random bag checks and things like that. So certainly um, a lot to dive into there. Hop on, if you would, though, to vaccination and, and testing, which I know is a, is a hot topic on many people's minds.
0: And do you know what's interesting is that something, so we've been talking about vaccination and testing data for the last 12 months, well, testing and then vaccination, but something which is just in the last couple of weeks and Brian this is your fault it is the CDC's guidance that actually if you're fully vaccinated and you've waited two weeks you no longer need a um, you know to wear a mask or worry about social distancing has, has caused a lot of organizations to go great let's go with that globally and so it's a question that's coming up right can I differentiate between vaccinated you know, vaccination status or not, let people who are vaccinated in the building or let people who are vaccinated not wear masks everyone else has to, let vaccinated people attend events everyone else has to attend externally. Now, there are a host of health and safety data protection and discrimination law issues, which mean, I'm I'm just going to be blunt here, the answer to that is no, you can't do that in EU or the UK. That is um, distinguishing people based on vaccinations. Status at the moment, based on the current status of the law, is not permitted. Why is that? Well, if we take a dive into the data protection issues, actually several of the regulators across Europe have said there is no justification for having vac- vaccine for employers having vaccination data, so you can't have it. So that's the first thing that's clear. So in fact, you can't have it. So how could you even implement that policy in countries such as the UK, where actually the guidance from the regulator is you might be able to have it if you have a really good reason for it so that takes us on to the health and safety considerations do you have a really good reason for it well the um you know the, if i just take a closer look at the uk our uk health and safety guidance at work has no reference to vaccination the vaccination plays status plays no part in how you organize people at work actually the focus is on social distancing if i take that into account then i can't follow the CC, cdc guidance as a uk Employer, I have to follow the, um, I'm well advised to follow the UK um, health and safety guidance. If that's right, then what role does vaccination data play? None. And so I have no right, you know, I have no legitimate interest in asking for that data. And so the ICO kind of goes that far and says it's really hard to see why you'd have a legitimate interest outside of a kind of healthcare or close personal contact setting. So so you've got that, and then of course I would throw in because I can't miss it the discrimination law risks, which there are a number of people who can't either. Um, it might be for religious reasons, it might be for medical reasons, it might be because they're pregnant um, that are cannot uh, or will not take the vaccine. Well, they have protections too, and the question is whether the vaccine requirement can be justified um, in their case. And given again going back to the health and safety guidance, if that doesn't say vaccination plays a role in the workplace. It's very hard to see why an employer can impose that obligation. So um, I'm afraid we are a, we are probably a little bit conservative <laughs> around vaccination data.
1: Julia, that was a, a tour de force. I mean, uh, maybe I'll ask this of our audience, which is some some great topics across AI, vaccinations, uh, employee monitoring, and diversity. And let us know what you want to t- what you want to hear about a little bit more, because there's plenty to unpack in each of those. But I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Julia Wilson, Partner Extraordinaire in our London office, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Oh, I'm delighted, Brian. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next podcast when we connect on tech. For more information on data and technology, subscribe to our blog
1: at connectontech.com or visit our website at bakermckenzie.com.